You're listening to Enduring Essentials, Reflective Practice, What Is It? This is episode four of the Educators for Impact podcast. This episode was recorded on July 16th, 2020. This podcast is all about shining a light on educators as people. Through exploring, examining, and uplifting the experiences of educators, we hope to leave a lasting impact on the students, families, and communities we are called to collaborate with. During this episode, we will discuss what reflective practice is and how teachers can use it to strengthen their ability to show up authentically in the classroom. Hello again, my name is Michelle and I'm a middle school teacher in the Bronx, New York. Of course, I'm here with my lovely co-host, Kalinda Jones, AKA Dr. Jones. She's gonna quickly say hello to you all. Tell us a little bit about herself. Okay, Jones, the mic is yours. Thank you. I am a professor here in Sacramento, California, and I teach social work classes as well as psychology courses. And in my previous lives, which just mean like 10 years, 12 years, 20 years ago, I taught middle school and high school science, and I've also taught counseling at the graduate school level. So Michelle and I met back in my previous life when (laughs) she was in my 10th grade biology class and when I had her again for 11th grade English. Michelle, you want to tell us a little bit about what kind of a student you were? Not really, you know, because my students might be listening to this, so they they need to think that Miss Randall was the most well-behaved, you know, best student in the class. You know, I was a scholar, Kalinda, shaking her head in disagreement. I was a scholar, but just with some extra spunk to me, but... I'm not disagreeing with the scholar. I just want to say that. The well-behaved part, I'm not sure about that. Wait, what part? The Mm well-behaved? Not sure. Okay, so you yelled at me for sitting on top of a cabinet a couple times, all right? Uh, (laughs) I was that kid. I was involved in my academics, but I I still wanted to have a lot of fun and, and chill. And so I was a good student. Describe what type of teacher you were back then. I think that I was about my business as a teacher. I was serious about learning, serious about biology, and serious about adapting my curriculum to meet the unique needs of my students so that they would be able to achieve the learning outcomes and also apply the content to their life in a way that fit well with their life circumstances, their cultural identity. They could have the same quality education as the really, really wealthy district across town. I mean spoken like a true teacher, a true excellent teacher. And I just want to hint on the, uh, you know, cultural identity. Like I remember your Black History Month project. I remember I was Elijah McCoy and I dressed up as Elijah McCoy. And uh, yeah, I do remember that. So, you know, when you're speaking of like adapting your curriculum, you know, it was awesome. I learned about him. I learned that he invented the Piston. I'm a Pistons fan. I never even knew what they were named after until I did that project. So (laughs) thank you for that. And so just like you know, Kalinda and I were just like going back and forth. We were kind of reflecting on our experiences as for me as a student in her classroom and for her as a teacher. And our quote of the day today is the more reflective you are, the more effective you are. And that's from Hall and Cimarron. And they wrote a book just about how to be a better teacher by teaching, reflecting, and then learning from your students and just in your classroom. So I have a question for Kalinda. She's really, 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 really great at explaining things. And so uh, when we were talking about, we're planning this episode, we were like, yo, I was like, Kalinda, could you please explain what is reflective practice? Help us out. All right. 
So this is one of the enduring essentials that I think is absolutely necessary for us as educators if we're going to improve our practice. But also, I say often, if nothing is different in your class, the students are always getting younger and you're always getting older. And that even happens for us at like at the college level. And so there's always changes. And we'll talk in a different, in the next episode about how COVID-19 has changed things. So what do you do to be effective in the midst of change? And the key is you have to ask yourself that question. So you have to be committed to learning about what's going on in your practice as an educator. There is a lot of co-learning and Paulo Freire talks about co-learning and other people do as well. And sometimes I think we think about co-learning as like learning the content together. But I also believe that as educators, we need to be learning about what is effective in our class. And so in order to do that, I think we need one, there's a lot of different reflective cycles that are out there. And I've just chose a simple one because I think it's easy to put into practice. So basically you reflect on some experience that you had in the class. Essentially that means you stop, observe, understand what you're feeling, what you're thinking. So it's got an inward focused first. And you might also like take some time Time to understand what the students were thinking and feeling as well. And then you move beyond just thinking about it to trying to understand it. So you reflect and then you try to understand it. And this is where research and theory and knowledge of yourself, knowledge of your students comes into play. And after you've done this reflection and understanding or making sense of conceptualizing what's happened in a particular experience you've had as an educator, then you use that to guide some changes and put an action plan or some experimentation into practice that will lead you into new experiences. And then you keep doing this and doing this and doing this. And it doesn't like stop. It's an ongoing thing. One of the things that I think is important is that when we read about teacher reflection, the reflective practice model, there's two concepts that are important. One is reflection on practice and one is reflection in practice. So I think all of us have, have encountered some type of an experience where we're teaching and we're like, oh crap, this is not going well. And most of us aren't just like, okay, we're gonna stop class. We adjust mid course. But there's also sometimes we have a really bad class and we just keep plowing through and then afterwards we're like, oh my goodness, what happened? And so the first one is reflection in action or reflection in practice. And then there's the reflection on practice that you can do after the fact. And I think that it, we really need to be clear that it happens both ways. So if something doesn't go well, it's fine. The goal is for, this is what I always say, if the first class you take me for, don't take it the first time I teach it. Wait till I teach that course, psychology, abnormal psych, social work, human service courses, wait till I've taught it a second or third time, because then I've done a lot of reflection on my practice of teaching that particular class. So this is an ongoing cycle. It happens all the time. And I think it is one of the foundational or essential things that will help us be effective as educators. I just have a, a quick question. So thank you for sharing that, because I didn't get it until you said the in and the on, like in practice. And I feel like the in practice is like, oh crap, I can do something right now to change the course of this lesson. And I think the in practice is what we feel in the moment. And we're like, should we go? Should we stop? So like, could you give us an example or maybe just like a scenario when you were in practice, because I think the on practice happens like every day when you look at your exit tickets and you look at the information that you gather from the students. But when you're in practice, like what does that look like just to like have that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't going well, and then actually take action 
during the lesson to actually shift the course? Like, do you have an example of that? I do actually. Awesome. Um, I've got an example that has both in and on practice. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So let me set the scenario for you. This is, I think if you've listened to other episodes, you know that I teach both in a prison in California and I teach on campus at a community college campus. So this particular class that I'm talking about occurred on campus. So this is a college class. We usually have 35, 40 in the class. It's a cross-cultural psychology course. And in a cross-cultural psychology course, it's a social behavioral science course. So we have a lot of content to cover, but I, the focus of that class when I teach it is on making sure that the content gets applied to people's personal and racial cultural identity development. So it's meant to help people grow and apply the content, not just learn a bunch of knowledge about cross-cultural psychology. So Early in the semester, students, I do a lot of work around just identifying their cultural identity factors. What labels do they choose? And what often happens is that when students are asked to like list their race, there's a whole lot of things that they do an assignment about race, gender, sexual orientation, religious, spiritual affiliate. Like there's a lot of cultural factors that we look at. So we look at, we call this intersectionality to understand that we all have intersectional identities. Some are dominant identities and some are more oppressed or marginalized identities. But if we're going to look at the Mm -hmm. whole person, we have to look at all of these. So early in the semester, this particular example that I'm giving you, there was a student who completed that and then was really committed to understanding her biracial identity. This happened very early in the semester and she would bring it up in class a lot. And our campus is often believed to be primarily white. But what I've learned in teaching cross-cultural psychology is that in every class, I have somewhere between 10 to 20% of the class that identifies as biracial. And of that, a good hunk of them pass as white. So you wouldn't know it if you weren't doing this particular assignment. So any, or this particular class, right, where they're identifying their racial labels that they choose. So I have students in the class, this particular student was taught, has has really been from the beginning of the semester talking about her biracial identity. And then as the semester goes on, other students are talking about it. And it's about two thirds of the way through the semester. And I teach racial identity development models. So the students in my class, they do, it's kind of, it's a pseudo flipped class. They do a lot of reading outside of class, do some application, and then we do something with that in class. It includes my clarification of the content. But often we talk about like whatever the application was. So we're talking about the racial identity development models. And the student says pretty early in our discussion at the beginning of class, she's like, none of these models worked for me. Wait, pause. When you're talking about the model, is there a certain way that you can, is it a process that you go through to figure out your racial identity? So I have them go through a process. So racial identity development models are very similar to other developmental models, except for unlike you go from being a child, like an infant to a toddler, to like an adolescent to an adult, unlike those kind of developmental models that are age-based, this is really based on socialization and what happens in your social environment. And so, but they're developmental models. And you'll have like, like there's one for white folks. There's one for black folks. There's like a ton of them, right? So I chose all of these models and I say, pick one of these models and apply it to yourself. Go through the stages of the model and give me evidence for and against you being in that stage or that you've moved through that stage. That's what they did for homework. So the students like none of these models worked for me. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, this is the student who's been talking about her biracial identity all semester. And I'm like, holy shit. Like in my mind, I'm like, 
the student is confused and she's asking me for clarification. She looks legit puzzled, kind of like she did something wrong. And of course I'm like, holy shit, I didn't give them a biracial identity development model. I was like, to begin with, I was confused. Like what? She's been working on her racial identity, like figuring it out and applying class stuff all semester. Then I get like super anxious, like, oh my gosh, how did I look like, how did I overlook this? And then I'm feeling responsible because the students in front of me feeling confused. And I'm like, they're confused because I didn't give them the right information. Right? So that is that part that I just explained right there. The first part is the experience. I gave you the background on that. The next part is the, the observation where I go through my thoughts and feelings. I think about like what's good and what's not so good about that situation. And then this is the key part. That's not enough right there. You could go home and do that with your friends, go out to the restaurant or a bar and talk through that stuff with your friends. That is not going to make you a reflective practitioner. You got to figure out what was going on and then you've got to adjust course. So right in the moment, I realized just what I told you was like, oh, I didn't give them a biracial identity development model. Like I realized it right away. And I was like, Later, or I was like, later I reflected on practice, like, why did I do that, right? And I was viewing race as a binary, even though I've had like semester after semester of students with biracial identities who are passing. Like, I know this, right? But I fall into like a really simplistic way of thinking of the world as like black or white, Latin X, right? Like Asian, right? So in my making sense of this, I realized right then that I had caused the confusion. Like I believed it was something that it was an oversight on my part. I didn't feel all guilty and all that. I was just like, whoa, big oversight. And I do think that I caused harm. And the student had obviously spent a lot of time trying to do the assignment and felt like, whoa, what is wrong with me that this doesn't fit in here? Which if you know biracial identity development, that's kind of a, that can often happen in biracial identity development anyways. So I kind of like really complicated what was going on for her all semester. And so my goal in once I understood what was going on was to like address the exclusion and try to correct the harm. I think it's really important. Sometimes we don't try to correct harm. So right away, we were going to have a conversation as a class. And I was like, we are not having a conversation in class. So I split them into groups, which they do a lot of like partner, small group discussions in that class. And I pulled up the biracial identity model and put it on the board. <laughs> and I said, hey, how about this? And then her, the lights went like, oh, this is helps. This makes sense to me. This is what I could have done in my homework. And then this would have all made sense. But I just, so that's reflection in practice. Like right there in the moment, I realized that and I was like, oh, I can correct course. However, I really did feel like that this was a really big miss for me, a, like a big miss. And at the end of the semester, I felt like there were some more things I needed to do to address my error. And so at the end of the semester in this class, they pick some topic that they want to study in more depth, and then they do a bunch of research and present to the class. And so what I did when we created those categories, usually I let the class create the categories, but I said, you know what, I really think that this class would benefit from a, if there was a group that did biracial identity development. So I initiated, I didn't make them be in the group, I initiated that. And then I had like four people, four or five students in the class choose that group who all identify as biracial. And I think at least two of them were white passing, but that wasn't enough. I told the student at the end of the semester, I said, you know, I've really been thinking about this a lot and this was really my oversight. 
And I'm really thankful that you came to the table and you researched this more and that, you know, this didn't stop your own growth and development on this topic you were interested in the class. But I did say, I am going to correct this in the future. This will always be part of what I include in the curriculum. I will not be giving identity development models without including biracial identity development. And so that was kind of the longer way that I approached that. And so I think it's also important to say that like this cycle continues. So the next time I teach the class, I will include the biracial identity development model and I will kind of evaluate how is that going. And I will also look for other areas or other things that I'm leaving out. And so it's an ongoing process. And one of the ways that I continue the process is by asking myself more broadly, what ways am I excluding other students through my curricular choices? Because to me, that's the bigger thing that happened was exclusion through curricular choice, right? And so then that question in and of itself will send me through this cycle of reflecting, you know, pausing, making sense of, and correcting action again. So that's my example. Well, that was a lot. (laughs) But it was helpful to hear both the in and the on together. And for that young woman who felt confused, I think that she left that classroom feeling empowered mm-hmm. because of the fact that it wasn't just like, oh, my bad, I'll get to it later. It was like a, I have the power to get to it now. So I'm going to get to it now. And then I'm, you know, and so when we are in those situations, when we can just pause and project something on the board or have that quiet conversation, like, yo, I'm sorry, like acknowledging that is very, very powerful. And I think that she probably won't forget that moment, you know, well, and for I a very long time. When you hear me talk about this, like, I, I guess as an instructor, I don't feel a lot of guilt about these things. I did feel like responsible, right? I did feel that. But I think that this is just the commitment that when we use reflective practice, we look at ourselves before we look at the students. Because too often what happens is, well, why is that student confused? This assignment was fine. And if that's my first question, then I'm never gonna get to where I got. Because immediately I was like, why is the student confused? She's been thinking about this all semester. What did I do is the first question, or what didn't I do is the first question. I may not have gotten the answer right away. If I didn't know there were biracial identity development models, I would have had to go and research them. It would have been a reflection on practice. But if I left that room, by saying, well, she just didn't read the assignment right, or she just doesn't understand it, or it's just a really difficult concept for her. If I had used what, that is what we call a deficit perspective. And if I had used the deficit perspective, I would not have changed my instruction. There would have been future students that felt excluded. There would have been students that semester that felt excluded. And to me, that is the danger of using a deficit model is that it stops the reflective practice model. Thank you for saying that because that is exactly what a lot of teachers do. You know, it's, there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm perfect. My assignment is perfect. My curriculum is perfect. You have the issue. We'll talk about it later. And then later never comes. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I, you know, for me, that was probably one of the most powerful things that you said was paused. I inserted what needed to happen into the classroom in that moment. And then I made sure that the group was created because of it, you know? And so that's the power of reflective practices. It's something that it's an action. Yes. It's a continuous action. It's a continuum of like reflection, listening, learning, observing, and saying my bad, you know, like, and you're saying it not only to the student, but you're saying it to yourself, like, okay. And then forgiving yourself and then moving past that, yes. you know? And so I think that's really, really cool. You know, so for all the, the elementary and middle school teachers who are listening to our podcast, I'm going to bring it down a couple notches because 
We're not doing the uh, racial development models in paradise, <laughs> if you know that is the, what I call my classroom. But I'm gonna, I am gonna give you an example of something I think a lot of teachers do when we are setting up our classroom environments. We're actually a lot of times encouraged to create spaces for students to reflect when they do not follow a classroom rule expectation or like Kalinda likes to say, a norm, because she's fancy now. So when I created Paradise Island, I had a desk in the back of the room and I called it the PIA, the Paradise International Airport. And this desk had a behavior reflection sheet folder that lived in like a, the caddy underneath the desk. Students were sent to the airport if they just couldn't get it together during direct instruction. They may have said something nasty to a teammate or a classmate, or, and I'm just like, yo, you guys are wilding. You particularly are wilding out. You need to go to the airport. So the airport was like next to the classroom library and like my classroom library I built out of crates and had like on those long like pillows that you can get from my kid for like seven bucks. Had a couple of those there that would always drift their way to the airport um, when kids were sitting back there. So the behavior reflection sheet just had like, what did I do? Who was involved? What can I do better next time? And then at the bottom, it said like whether they were going to take a round trip and come back to the island and continue learning, or if they wanted a one-way ticket out of class to the dean, to the assistant principal, like whoever. And, you know, from the inception of that, I'm like, yo, that's great. Like they get to make a choice. They get to reflect. They get to be, you know, in their own little space. But over time, I just started realizing that the, the airport became desirable for other reasons, right? I noticed one student in particular, we're just going to call her Ashley. She would come into class and head straight for the airport. I mean, it was like, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going straight to the airport. She would grab that green pillow, pull it from the library, and she was done. I'm like, sis, that's not really how this works. And then she would try to go back and forth with me to make sure she stayed at the airport. And I'm like, okay. And so she would do that. And then as time passed, I noticed that just when kids were sent there, you know, one particular class made a chant out of it, like hit the airport, hit that, hit that airport. And I'm like, yo, this is like turning into like a really bad thing. And so what I noticed was, you know, students were starting to feel like isolated, pushed out, embarrassed. And then for those who just needed a break, they started going straight for the airport or they would be confused and they would argue with me like, yo, like, why am I going to the airport? They need to go to the airport too. And then class time just started like turning into like airport debates. And a lot of the times, like I wouldn't have time to check their reflections with them in that moment. Therefore, they would just be pieces of paper, you mm. know, with reflection on their own, but no circle back from me. And so the first round of the airport, Next year, I was like, okay, I'm gonna keep the airport because it, it was semi-effective. Like, I didn't have to put the kids out of the room. A lot of the kids decided to stay. So I just said, yo, I'll just move the airport to the front of the room. So therefore, they, it wouldn't be that bad when they're, you know, walking to the airport and they still get to be a part of our community, right? But that didn't help. Students were sitting in the airport and they were still listening, but it became like a space where now I'm going to entertain. If I was entertaining from my seat in the back, I'm really going to entertain from my seat in the front with you, Ms. Randall, just to get my attention. So it just wasn't that reflective space that I thought it was going to be. And when I started talking to the students about the airport, because I always gave like an end of the year survey, they would just say the airport didn't feel good when I was sent there. 
and the airport also was good because I could take a break, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, so let's talk more about this. And when I started talking to my kids about it, they said that sometimes we really just need a break. So if we know that we can get it in your class, then we're going to go ahead and get into it with you or say something crazy to you so that they can have that break because school can be draining and harsh. So after a while, I said, okay, well, the airport became less popular in my classroom because I introduced Kit Kats. Now, Kit Kats, the slogan for Kit Kat is give me a break. So Kit Kats are, I actually like bought some king size Kit Kats and some picture frames. And of course, I ate the Kit Kat. And then I put the, the, the wrapper inside of the frames. And she's laughing at me. Stop laughing at me, Kalinda. Well, you and said, so, of course, I ate the Kit Kat, which is nothing to do with this example. So okay, I'm just, I'm just, okay, so yeah, I enjoy the Kit Kats. You know, they're great. And so I ate the Kit Kats and I gave the kids just an example of like when to use a Kit Kat, right? And so this actually came from my, my pre-intern teacher. She had been teaching for like 30 years and she did a similar system where she like had like some cat, they, she called them like cat days, but like they were like cats who were having a really bad day, like a cat hanging from like a clothespin or something like that. But anyway, like Kit Kats were days where you just weren't feeling it, where you were having a bad day or you had a negative interaction with a classmate or a teacher sometimes and you just needed a break. And so you were still responsible for the work However, you were able to just put your head down and just like, yo, I don't want to do this right now. And the airport disappeared. I stopped using it. I didn't need it anymore. And from the Kit Kats, it evolved to even like having cool down centers and like areas where kids could like fidget with things and just take that time. And it teaches kids how to regulate themselves when they're having a bad day that it's okay to stop. And I think as adults, we don't teach kids that it's okay to pull back when we're having a moment because if they see us constantly going and going and going and going, they may not see the text message that we sent to another teacher like, hey, I'm having a moment, could you come in here and you know step in? They just see us walking out. And so for my reflective practice, it was more so just observing like this space that I thought was really dope and really cool for kids and, and seeing that it really wasn't. And I think a lot of elementary and middle school teachers agree that when they've had these spaces for kids, it can be, you know, a, a volatile situation in the classroom. So instead of having a blow up, you know, asking a kid to leave, the blow up stays in the room because you're trying to push them into an area. So it's really no different. But I had it. I thought I had it. I had, thought I had it because I'm like, oh, it has a cool name. And, you know, it's not too much, you know, too much flag for her. But, you know, through reflective practice, it was like, no, Michelle, you can do better. So this is more so like this will be an example of, um, and on practice, right? Where it was like, yo, this is what I'm doing. It's not working. And then changing it up. So, you know, so I have a Kit couple Kats. Questions. one is a really like silly question, but did they get to eat Kit Kats or you ate the Kit Kats and now they get to Kit Kats? I ate the Kit Kat. They did not get Kit Kats. They just got the picture frame of the Kit Kat and they put it on their desk, right? And so I will cruise past. And if like someone like my coach or my principal walked in, they seen the Kit Kat on the desk, they knew like, okay, that kid is taking their day. And I've never had a principal administrator or anyone walk in and say, that's a bad thing. They're yeah. like, they get it, you know, like, so back in the day, that would have been a problem, but. Well, so that's one question. And the psychologist in me wants to comment on that. Like the amount of self-awareness and regulation skills 
that you actually are allowing students to both use and practice in this example are is really great. And I think that this is humanizing of them as well. So that's one thing I, I want to say about that. But I also had another question is, how did you feel in the midst of all of this? Like, I hear that you were really motivated to try to solve the problem, but I'm just wondering what things you were feeling throughout this, like, it sounds like it was more than a year, like it was a couple year process. It was, I think that as teachers, we use our summers to really dive into what went well, what didn't go well. And I take it upon myself every year to give surveys at the end of the year, anonymous surveys to the kids so that I get like real feedback, like, look, sis, this worked and this didn't work. And I love you. They always write, I love you, Miss Randall, but and I'm like, okay, no, I, I, I need to hear it. So I felt like after each year of the airport, it just didn't feel good. I felt like I wasn't doing any better than saying, hey, get in the hallway. You know, like I, I felt like I was still doing more of the same. And if you're really trying to change, like, the way all kids learn and the way all kids feel included in the classroom, you got to think about the kids who are usually sitting at the airport, the same kids who are probably sitting in similar spaces in years previously. And so their experience is not changing. They're just changing the space in which they sit. But their ability or their, yeah, their ability to feel connected to the community is constantly being pushed away. Yes. Right? So let me say what I think you're feeling. I think that you're okay. feeling a deep care or if mm -hmm. you're comfortable calling, which in some communities we're comfortable calling it love. <laughs> That's what I would call it. Yeah. But a deep care for the student. And you're also motivated by a deep desire or value to do like what's best for them as people within the space of the learning. Like I'm hearing those as some of those underlying values. And I'm also hearing like you're feeling conflicted, which would tell me that you weren't feeling authentic in your practice of using that the airport. And you were feeling conflicted because authentically you want the inclusion, you want the humanization, you want children to be children. I know this from talking to you, right? But yeah. in this practice, you were acting opposite or inauthentic from your real values and feelings around. Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt very much like I needed to do this so that when someone went, came into my classroom, they would see that I had a solution for that. But in reality, I'm just like, no, nah, this is not really, this is not what I believe. I believe that all kids should be in the classroom, you know, and that's something that, you know, a lot of people say, well, some kids just can't handle it. And I'm like, mm, no, I don't believe that. And so the airport was, saying that no you do believe that right you do believe that some kids don't deserve to be a part of the community and that's when it was like yeah this just has to go so literally it's gone there's no more airport on paradise island anymore yeah but we have some some great kit kats and so yeah i i do you know like but i do have a, like a deep love and care for my students you know past and present we're we, we eventually we will talk about teaching as a calling and like feeling that call to care for for children so definitely you're you're spot on when you say that it was like a care because I do care and I think a lot of teachers it's easy to care about the kids who listen and it's not as easy when they're bucking against what you're saying and they're throwing things on the floor and, and like for our younger you know listeners or teachers who are listening you know that doesn't feel good it doesn't feel good to not feel like you have control of your space but you have to understand that that child is the priority and their learning is the priority and their experience is the priority over our want or need to react and control. So, so yeah. 
we need to keep moving to our normal ending here because we have been talking for 35 minutes, I think. Oh, wow. Wow. 30 minutes. Yeah. So we're a little bit longer than we try to keep these episodes, but we're going to move into like, what's the takeaway and extension from this conversation today? And I'm actually taking a lot away from your example. One of the things is I think that it's interesting how it felt your motivation for doing it was performative. Like you were going to perform for some evaluation. And the students were trying to perform within this airport setting. And then eventually over time, they got done performing and you got done performing, right? And that you got back to this authentic space. And I also think that this was a continual reflection that you were doing. And I really see the evidence of co-learning. Like you were willing to let them teach you through their behavior what they needed. And I think that like they're, if I could do anything for instructors out there, I would just empower them to be able to engage in this kind of co-learning. It's not just co-learning about content. It's co-learning about the interaction in the classroom, right? Around the relational aspect of what's going on and around a community of learners like this goes to some of the bell hooks's work right about this community of learners this is the kind of thing that it takes to facilitate a community of learners so what i am wondering because i see a lot in the work that i do now at the community college and across the district that i'm in I see a lot of people not owning their own personal power. I'm not really quite sure what that's about, but I just wonder what's needed for instructors at all grade levels and probably parents too, to feel empowered, to be able to engage in this kind of co-learning, reflective practice, interactive, like improvement. And that's what I'm wondering. I'm just wondering what would it take for people to feel empowered or to be empowered, to be able to actively use this. Awesome. Uh, I think for me, my biggest takeaway is the purpose, not really the purpose, but the, the need for continued reflection even after that, right? And so even though I came up with the Kit Kats or remember the Kit Kats and like, oh my gosh, Kit Kats and work here, like what else is needed to make sure that all kids feel like they're getting what they they need in spaces. We can no longer say, go to the counselor, go to this, you know, go to that person, like, especially with uh, COVID-19, you know, so what, what, how are we adjusting our practices to make sure that those moments when kids may be feeling frustrated from sitting on a laptop all day, you know, how do we still build in these breaks and these things that they may need developmentally? So that's my takeaway is like, it's a continuation and it's okay that it's, it's, it's a continuation. It doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be finished. And so I think that's what I'm taking away from reflective practice, that it's okay to leave it open. And then of course, I'm just wondering in those moments when it's an in practice, just being aware that when it is an in practice, it's okay to take a little bit of time and deviate for that in practice. Right. And so sometimes, you know, like I said, I'm very aware of my pacing and like, oh my gosh, like they're going to say I'm not going fast enough, but it's okay to stop if it's an in practice, it's in practice if it's going to validate a student or it's going to extend the learning. Just do it. So those are my two. Thank you so much for listening to the Educated for Impact podcast. Please feel free to leave a comment or suggestion about topics you would like us to discuss in the future. During our next episode, we will continue our conversation about reflective practice, but this time we'll be focusing on using the this tool, Reflective Practice, during COVID-19. If you haven't followed us on social media, you can find us at Educators for Impact on Instagram slash Facebook and follow us on Twitter at edu, the number four, impact. Have a wonderful day and thanks for listening.